The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your host, Kate Ebner. You know, only 15 women in its more than 110-year history have been recognized with the Nobel Peace Prize. The Nobel Peace Prize is a great honor, and it's a great responsibility. And I'm truly honored today to have as my guest someone who has taken this prestigious honor granted to her, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, and has used it for the greater good of all. I'm delighted to introduce Nobel Peace Prize laureate Jody Williams. Jody received the Peace Prize in 1997 for her work to ban landmines through the international campaign to ban landmines, which shared the Peace Prize with her that year. In winning the prize, she became only the 10th woman and third American woman in its almost 100-year history to receive that prize. Uh, Jody has decided to band together with other women who have received the Nobel Peace Prize, and in 2006, she formed the Nobel Women's Initiative based in Ottawa, Canada. Today, we're going to talk about how the initiative uses the prestige of the Nobel Peace Prize to support the efforts of women around the world who are working towards sustainable peace with justice and equality. And I want you all to know that I've been following the work of this group since 2006, and I'm uh, personally delighted, Jody, to have you as a guest on the show today. Thank you for making time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Well, I know that um, you know that one of the things that I have loved best, Jody, about your um, your voice uh, on the topic of um, making peace is that you have consistently said in all kinds of public venues, from TED talks to interviews to the book that you've written, uh, you've really talked about peace as something that's not about rainbows and doves, not about um, you know. Kumbaya, but actually uh, <laughs> uh-huh. an active, um, hard, you know, worthwhile endeavor. So I'd like to just kick us off by asking you to talk a little bit about what peace is to you. Sure. Um, I have started talking about peace in the way you just mentioned because I became increasingly irritated that the terms like peacenik and, you know, tree-hugging liberal and other such terms were used in order to actually denigrate the work of people who believe it is possible to create a sustainable peace in the world. And sustainable peace is not simply the absence of armed conflict. I think a lot of people, when they think of war and peace, really think simply of peace as when 
the guns finally stop shooting and, you know, the soldiers go home and the country tries to rebuild. And you don't really think about it after that. Sustainable peace, to me, clearly needs the absence of armed conflict for the possibility to be created. But sustainable peace is is really based on a different outlook about what security is. And that's the security of individual human beings, not national security, which in my view is really the security of the state apparatus and not making sure that people's lives are secure in that, you know, in that providing for them with decent housing, with education, with health care, with meaningful work for men and women so that they can, you know, raise and support their own families, educate them, etc. I believe if the world didn't spend the multiple trillions of dollars on weapons that it does and put much of that money into meeting our basic needs, the entire planet would be a much more secure place than it is today. Thank you. That's a, a great way for us to start with uh-huh. your explanation of, of a sustainable peace and um, and the link that you make to human security mm-hmm. as a distinction from national security, which um, sort of calls us to to different kinds of um, initiatives and actions. Um, I want to back up for a moment, and I've I've I'm sure there are many people listening who would love to hear. Your story about before you became a Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, how did you actually become involved uh, with the anti-landmine activism and the anti-war activism? Mm-hmm. Well, the anti-war activism came about from the Vietnam War. I was a college student at that time, and my first protest was against the war in Vietnam in May of 1970 when I was at the University of Vermont. And it was, of course, the time when there was much upheaval and social turmoil across the U.S. because of the war, because of people, you know, struggling and protesting against the war, coinciding with the, you know, reemergence of the women's rights movement as well as, you know, Martin Luther King and civil rights movement. And all of that combination made me begin to understand our own country differently. I'd always believe the um, benevolent mythologies about all the good things about the U.S., and many good things, you know, certainly are true, but a lot of the ugly parts of our history and, you know, current story are overlooked because it's not very pleasant to talk about the bad parts of one's history. But it was really that that got me going, and then the wars in Central America in the 80s, and then I was actually invited to try to create the landmine campaign in 1991 at the end of the year. You know, Jody, as, as I, um, as I hear you talk about that, you know, there, the, the, you're, you're describing kind of an awakening that happened for you about sort of the story behind the story, I think. And I, I was, I've been reading your story and, and your bio, autobiography and, um, I wanted to ask you, you know, when mm-hmm. you were a child, <laughs> you, um, you took a stand, you know, for for your brother you uh-huh. know, against the bully, you know. And I, I read your story. I, re- I I read from an early age the story of somebody who stood up and was willing to to fight or to do whatever was necessary to 
to create more justice. And, mm-hmm. and is that how you is that how you see it too when you look back? Well, you know, I hadn't thought about it much until after one receives the Peace Prize. People start asking you, you know, how did you get to be the way you are? Which is a complicated (laughs) question, and one could pick out a million different aspects of one's life, of course. But I did start thinking about it a lot and thinking about the, you know, the roots of my family that have contributed to my being the way I am and certainly defending my brother when he was when we were both young um was part of it i think that um watching my neighbor boys billy and bobby bully my brother simply because he could not hear just shocked me even as a very young child i didn't understand what was so you know alluring about torturing a kid who couldn't hear and making him feel even worse than he felt already because he couldn't hear. So mm-hmm. I started trying to defend him. The whole family did. Mm-hmm. And that translated ultimately into speaking out for others who either couldn't or wouldn't speak out on behalf of themselves. And then by the time you know I was a young adult at university, I guess it, that even translated into trying to speak out against oppression by nation states, including my own. Well, I I, uh, I I wanted to ask you that because I think there's a um, there's a realization that sometimes we have that you know I will take a stand. You know, mm-hmm. I I do take a stand, and I, I really have, have seen that in your story from the beginning. But I I also think that the stands you've taken have um, have been. Uh, game-changing in ways that I know people would really love to hear more about. So I wanted to ask you, what does it mean to you to have um, to have won the Nobel Peace Prize? <laughs> my first thought has always been it made mom and dad get off my back about, <laughs> about being something they could explain to their friends, which sounds very cold, but it really isn't. My parents... Neither of them finished high school. Mm-hmm. So education, obviously, to them has been very significant. And I was the first of the kids to graduate from university. And I was considered smart. But I like to point out that, you know, education when I was growing up was really reliant on having a really good memory. If you could memorize the facts and spit them back at the teacher, you were a good student. Mm-hmm. And at that point in my young life, I had a great memory. Mm-hmm. So it was easy for me to do well in school. But like I think like parents of any age, it's easier for them if their children become something they can really recognize. You know, doctor, lawyer, journalist, whatever, nurse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up being a grassroots activist, and that mm-hmm. made no sense whatsoever Mm -hmm. to them and Mm -hmm. they wanted me to do something like be a lawyer you know because that would ensure my security my financial security and you know place me properly in society and all the things that parents want for their kids Mm -hmm. at the same time they have always been phenomenally loving supportive and respectful parents who 
you know, they'd say what they wanted, but they recognized that everybody's life is their own and you have to follow your own path. So getting the prize from that perspective for me was terrific. <laughs> Personally, it was really difficult. Um, yeah. I am an introvert by nature, mm-hmm. which does not mean that you cannot be articulate in public, but it right. means that you get your energy by being alone and, you know, contemplating and reading and things like that. So being a public, you know, spokesperson for the campaign and now, you know, other issues of war and peace and human security rattled my cage, I guess would be how I'd put it. And I had a very difficult time for many years. I would come home from some of the events that I'd be invited to speak at and cry. Um, because the, of the stress of just, well, um, I know, just pushing. the bizarreness of the expectations. You know, mm-hmm. a good friend of mine, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, was asked once when we were at a conference together, you know, what changed after the Peace Prize? And he said, before I received the Peace Prize, I talked and talked and talked and talked and nobody listened. Then after the Peace Prize, everything I say is a pearl of wisdom. <laughs> and it's that kind of pressure, not, you know, I could talk yeah. about anything related to landmines, but all of a sudden it's somehow expected that you are a font of wisdom, you know, about anything relatively related to peace, whatever that means, you know. And I just found that disturbing. I didn't suddenly become wise in all things. Um, <laughs> people who know me well would say I didn't become wise in much of anything except for, you know, landmine campaigns. But over time, you know, I began to understand the prize in a different way and the huge responsibility that comes with it. And I found that difficult, too, but I've adjusted to it. And Mm -hmm. in all honesty, when I really loved having the Peace Prize was when we formed the Nobel Women's Initiative, Mm -hmm. because I really believe that through the initiative and our support of women's organizations around the world, I'm actually sharing that prize with, you know, thousands and thousands of women who are trying to make the world a better place for everybody. And that makes me happy. Well, that is a great, um, very wise pearl of a statement that you've just said. (laughs) I want to take us to a break right now. Believe it or not, we've actually um, used our first segment. But when we come back... We want to hear a lot more about the Nobel Women's Initiative Mm -hmm. and about that work. So this is Kate Ebner, Visionary Leader, Extraordinary Life. And uh, we'll be right back today. Uh, My conversation is with Jody Williams, Nobel Peace Laureate. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. 
Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more? Not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Listen for Be More, Achieve More, inspiration for the entrepreneurial mind. With host Chris Cooper, you'll hear from successful achievers from around the world with the passion and experience to offer invaluable guidance. These people are making a difference and will help give you the motivation and insight to achieve more. Be More, Achieve More can be heard live Fridays at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. This is Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm your host, Kate Ebner, and I'm speaking today with Nobel Peace Laureate Jody Williams. Jody received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1997 for her work to ban landmines. And we uh, are, are just capturing a little bit of her, her personal history and of what that prize meant to her. Right before the break, Jody, we um, heard you say that one of the most wonderful outcomes of winning that prize was the opportunity to create the Nobel Women's Initiative. So I want to pick up right there and ask if you would tell us a little bit about how the Nobel Women's Initiative came to be. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was in 2004. Sharinda Bobby and I were in Nairobi, Kenya. We were actually there for a, a landmine conference. She had started a group to deal with the landmine issue in Iran from the Iran-Iraq War. And so we were there for this big international conference, and we were sitting somewhere having coffee or tea, and she started talking about the fact that with that year's announcement of the prize for Wangari Maathai, 2004, we were now seven women alive in the world today with the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. And shouldn't, she suggested, shouldn't we do something together to support women's human rights? And I thought it was a terrific idea. We happened to be meeting with Wangari the next day. She also was captivated by the idea. And I took responsibility to talk with the other Nobel women because I had seniority, if you will. Since I'd had the prize in 97, I knew everybody else. Mm-hmm. So I started talking to the other women, and we did agree that it would be a wonderful thing to be able to use the influence and access that we have by virtue of having received the Peace Prize to find ways to support and promote the work of women working around the world for sustainable peace with justice and and equality. And support did not mean financial support. We don't have money. Still, you know, we have enough to offer the kinds of support that we do in the initiative, which is things like, for example, we take delegations of women to areas where women are struggling on a range of issues. This 
February, there was a delegation to the Democratic Republic of Congo, for example, looking at rape and gender violence and conflict. And out of that delegation, we will have a series of events and activities taking place this summer at a huge international summit on that on rape and gender violence and conflict being held in England um, by the foreign minister of, of the UK. But we also take part in activities that are as simple as writing a letter of support for activities that an organization of women is doing, or sending a video of support, or sometimes going and just being with them in a conference, not taking the lead, but being there to demonstrate simply by being there that the Nobel Women's Initiative supports the goals and objectives of, you know, said conference or their press conference or, you know, other activities that they're undertaking, if I make myself clear. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's... Um it's wonderful to to connect you know to connect what you've just said with the story you told us before the break about you know sort of the initial um you know the, the initial overwhelming impact of receiving mm-hmm. the Nobel Peace Prize and then the realization that you know it, it it's a powerful platform mm-hmm. for you know for bringing these issues to the fore and to putting support behind women who are working for sustainable peace yeah and i i wonder you know um what is it? Uh, this the, the question that I originally wanted to ask you was, you know, why only the women laureates? But then I feel there's something obvious in the answer to that question. Well, <laughs> so there I think, are a couple of things. Uh, I mean, yeah. considering that there have only been 15 women recipients, as you pointed out, and something like 94 men and maybe 35 or 6 organizations, mm-hmm. it's quite interesting to note that never have men come together and formed a Nobel men's initiative of any type. As soon as we women recognized that we had sort of a teeny quorum, we decided to, you know, use that together to enhance the work of others. And that, I think, is a very clear example of how women, not that we're perfect, not that we would, you know, make the world a brilliant place if we ran the world like men have for, you know, from time immemorial. But we do do things differently. Now, we immediately think about coming together. What can we do together for others? Unlike, you know, the men laureates and not that they do do great things. Mm-hmm. I love many of them. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's an interesting difference that we came together and, the men never have. What is it like for you to be at a gathering of the women laureates? What does that feel like? <laughs> oh, I have to laugh. I was just in Paris with Shirin Abadi from Iran and Lema Gaboi from Liberia. We were there um, helping support the launch of a women's rights platform for the European Union since, you know, uh, Assaults on women's rights, as we know, don't take place just in the developing world. Unfortunately, in the last decade or so, assaults on women's rights are taking place everywhere, and it's rather shocking. Mm-hmm. But um, it's always fun being with 
my sister laureates. But as you can imagine, um, there's a lovely little saying that I adore, polite women don't change history. Um, and we're all straightforward, hardworking, sometimes hard-talking women. So you can imagine if we're all together on occasion, it can be very full of energy, to put it nicely. <laughs> we don't always agree on everything. Uh-huh. We always manage to work things out, but sometimes the process <laughs> is is a, a fun one. Well, you know, I'm glad you described that because I, I think it's such a, an incredible, you know, circle of women and um, must be fortifying and, and um, fun, as you said, and, and just maybe gratifying. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, we're all women who have lives and difficulties and ups and downs and our, mm-hmm. you know, families and personal lives. And we each have activities that we do on our own, you know, our individual works for peace. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the things we do collectively with the Women's Initiative. So it's uh, it's the human great, dimension. It's very human. Yeah, yep. nicely put. Well, I have I have um, lots of thoughts as you say all of that, but I want to ask you before we take our next break: Can okay. you share for us the vision of the Nobel Women's Initiative? Um. Well, I think it's kind of what we talked about a little bit in the beginning mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. We'd like to see a world that bases the concept of security not on the security of the state apparatus. You know, it's it's the old national security state framework that's been around since the 1600s. And the theory behind that is if the state is secure, then the people who live in said state are also secure. But the focus is not on making the people secure, it's on making the state secure. We want to see a shift to the the concept of human security, where people live in a world that is free of want and free of fear, relatively speaking, of course, um, which was actually framed that way by uh, then-Secretary General of the UN Kofi Annan, that if everybody's basic needs are met, imagine the level of security we would all feel in the world. And again, not that it would suddenly be transformed into a perfect world, not that there's, you know, wouldn't still be poverty and, you know, all of the afflictions that we face every day. But if most people could realize some of their dreams, the world would be more secure instead of what we're seeing now where increasingly, you know, the uber-rich are uber-richer and the poor are much poorer and the middle class is often collapsing. That certainly is not a world that will promote security in the long run. I know that the initiative uses three strategies to accomplish its work and that those strategies are strategy one, convening, Mm-hmm. And strategy two, shaping the conversation. Mm-hmm. And then strategy three, spotlighting and promoting um, that conversation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that, you know, I'm aware that we have a minute or so before we take our next break. But I wonder if you could explain why those are the three strategies. Well, um, because, uh, as you pointed out in the beginning, the Nobel Peace Prize is considered to be 
one of the most amazing recognitions of work in the world. So when the Nobel women come together and invite other women to come together either for a delegation or for our biannual, biannual meaning once every two years, not twice a year, our biannual conferences on different issues related to sustainable peace, or when we decided to begin the creation of the international campaign to stop rape and gender violence and conflict, people respond positively. Um, That is the convening power that, you know, for bad or good, we do have. Yes. So we bring people together to work out either strategies or concepts or, as you pointed out, the other two aspects of the pillars of our work. Um, And it has so far borne fruit. You know, it, it... I love these three strategies in part, Jody, because of the work I do with leaders as a leadership coach and mm-hmm. really helping people understand the power of conversation mm-hmm. and the power of communication and, um, you know, how to not squander the opportunity to convene and right. ha- have an important conversation. And I think the to see that these three strategies are the strategies um, of the Nobel Women's Initiative uh, underscores for me this um, this critical element of leadership. Um, we're going to have to take a break right now, uh-huh. but we'll be right back. Um, my guest, as you know, is Jody Williams, and we are talking today about um, her vision, um, the vision of the Nobel Peace Initiative, I'm sorry, the Nobel Women's Initiative for Peace. And we'll be right back to continue this conversation. Thank you. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. If you currently or aspire to serve on a board or work in a leadership capacity for or with a public or nonprofit organization, where can you turn to get the best advice and practices? How about Leadership Matters with Dr. Cheryl G., Jenny Frumer, John Janetta, and Linda Schub? Our program discusses challenges facing both public and nonprofit leaders. Don't miss these practical solutions and tips to enhance your leadership style and effectiveness. Leadership Matters airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. 
listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life. I'm Kate, and I'm delighted to be hosting the Nobel Peace Laureate Jody Williams. Jody won the Nobel Peace Prize for her work organizing the international campaign to ban landmines in 1997, and she has since formed the Nobel Women's Initiative with other Women Peace Prize winners. We've been talking about um, that powerful work that they're doing. And, you know, Jody, when you, we spoke before the show, you told us about the two main campaigns you've been working on more mm-hmm. recently. And I know one is the international campaign to stop rape and gender violence in conflict and also the campaign to stop killer robots mm-hmm. we'd love to learn more about these two efforts <laughs> well, i think one is self-explanatory the yeah. um, to stop rape and gender violence in conflict yeah it it, it, it came about in part because of the increasing use of rape and gender violence as a tactic of war Now, and people always say, oh, you know, women have been raped throughout history during conflict. You know, men can't control themselves. It's booty in terms of, you know, the loot and the uh, things that you can get out of conquest. Mm -hmm. But this is different. Um, For quite a while now, a decade or more, a couple decades, um, commanders have been giving the soldiers or, you know, rebel groups or whatever under them direct commands to rape women as a tactic to destroy the communities of the opposition, Mm. right? If you have, like, I think of, of course, the war in Darfur, because I led a delegation there for the UN quite a few years ago, and women were and still are being consistently raped because, you know, small traditional ethnic groups are very conservative about women's sexuality. Um, Men's sexuality is, of course, men's, but women have to be, quote-unquote, protected. So if you go into a village and you consistently rape women in a village, and you don't kill them, you rape them, and you you know, hope to impregnate some, which is causes complete dismay, but you begin to destroy the fabric of that community because raped women are very often, perhaps most of the time, divorced immediately by their husbands. So if you do that to a community, obviously you begin to destroy the fabric of that community. And if you do it in enough communities or villages in an area controlled by an ethnic group, you can forever shatter the warp and the weave of that society. And we just felt like something had to be done. And it just so happens that Liz Bernstein, who is the executive director of the Nobel Women's Initiative was the woman who was the coordinator of the landmine campaign after myself. And we have this, I don't know, innate desire 
to bring organizations together that are working on a similar issue and create an overarching strategy so that together you can move an issue forward more quickly and more efficiently. And certainly there have been tons of organizations working on gender violence, violence against women, violence in against women during war, but not together in an overarching campaign. And thinking about our success in the landmine campaign, we talked to others from our from that campaign who work in women's organizations and, you know, set about to bring different NGOs around the world together in what has now become the international campaign to stop rape and gender violence and conflict. And I think we're up to about somewhere between eight and 900 organizations that are part of the campaign. And, and with a campaign like this, um, how do you gauge progress? How do you see success? It's pretty darn tough. Yeah. Obviously, because it's, Rape in war is part of a continuum of violence against women. And one of the things that I stress whenever I talk about the campaign is that we can't just, you know, feel good about about helping women over there who are raped in war. Rape can happen in war because women everywhere in the world are treated as second-class citizens are objectified, and all the things that you and I already know about Mm -hmm. that I don't have to beat to death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, for example, here in the U.S., we have just had the, you know, Obama administration release a report on violence against women in universities. That also being part of the continuum of violence. And when I speak about our campaign, as a matter of fact, at universities, I put it in that context that that university young women in universities who want to be part of our campaign can't just be part of it in the context of let's help them over there. They have to also link it to the violence happening on their own campuses and in the lives of women every day. Um, so it, I, it's I think the campaign also was launched at a a moment that we couldn't have predicted, but is a moment where violence against women in all its forms is being increasingly addressed. Mm-hmm. You know, like we, we've been on the cusp of it, if you know what I mean, like we were mm-hmm. with the landmine campaign. You know, nobody had done anything on landmines, and when we created that campaign, it was right on the cusp of a moment of time when people wanted to address, you know, weapon systems that weren't just nuclear weapons because the wall you know the wall had come down and it it was serendipitous though how could we possibly have known that that would be the case with landmines how could we possibly have known that you know when we were deciding to bring together the campaign to stop rape that you know foreign secretary haig of the uk would be making it his primary you know foreign mm-hmm. policy platform and that, you know, he would push things through the U.N. that wouldn't have been pushed. And then this report in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. just, I don't know, it's just an issue. And we're not an issue. It's a violence against women that people are finally 
willing to address in larger numbers than before. And we just happened to be part of that, all of those, you know, all of the activities that are fomenting that change. And I'm happy it has, is turning out to be that way. But as you point out, measuring change is extremely hard, and it's going to take decades, not minutes. Yeah. Well, you know, as you're, as you're talking about this uh, kind of um, sort of synchronous alignment of, mm-hmm. of agendas and voices, and I'm, I'm reminded of what we often talk about um, at the Institute for Transformational Leadership at Georgetown, we're really looking at what is, what is the 21st century about and mm-hmm. what are these, this convergence of, you know, trends and forces and so on shaping uh, the world as we're living in it today. And, you know, we talk a lot about the role of women, the rise of women, uh-huh. and and with that seems to come this rise of violence against women, and perhaps the rise of this agenda, uh, uh-huh. shared agenda. So it's it's a it's a it's maybe the shadow side of a, the story. On the other hand, it's um, heartening and inspiring to to hear about this campaign. And I want to turn to the other campaign, but I want to ask you one sure. question, and that is if for those listening. Who are who are hearing this and, and wanting to get involved or uh-huh. take an action in support of um, of this initiative? What what would be a good first step? I think the best first step would be to Google the Stop Rape campaign and go to the website and learn about. I'm not learn about the issue. I think any woman in the world has an under, basic understanding right. of the issue. But look at what has been done so far. Look at what the campaign is planning in the future and specifically go to the page of what you can do. Um, I think that would be the most efficient way to start. Excellent. Good. Well, we want to also talk about the campaign to stop killer robots, which I have to say, very um, uh, tension-grabbing name Mm -hmm. for this campaign. you know, go ahead and tell us about sure. this one. The attention-grabbing name was done on purpose. Um, killer robots are not drones. So just to make that clear from the start, drones, of course, are the machines that can fly on their own but are still controlled by a, a operating team generally back in the U.S., like at Creech Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. These are the planes that the U.S. has used in assassinations in Somalia, in Yemen, in Pakistan, and they are, under international law, killing people in countries where we are not at war, you know, officially at war, are murders. They're assassinations. So the use of drones that way is an assassination, and but it's still a human being who's looking at the target through a computer back home, and then when he sees a target that he thinks is a legitimate target, and of course we're not even sure what that is because the Obama administration won't tell us the criteria, but when said target is is found, then that person pushes buttons back in the U.S. to fire the Hellfire missiles that kill the people or you know, person or people on the ground. Mm-hmm. So there's still a human being doing the killing. Killer robots are prototypes of weapons that will operate in the air, on the land, and the sea that will have no human being involved in the targeting and kill. 
Now, just just try to wrap your brain around that. That people in the U.S. defense industry and Israel was is another big player, the U.K. actually think that it is okay to create war machines that, on their own, can target and kill people. When I found that out a few years back, I was writing an article on the CIA and drones. When I found out about the you know, R&D for these future killer robots, I was completely freaked out, completely, the, at the thought that people thought it was okay and they were moving forward with this. So I started talking with my husband, uh, Steve Goose. He runs the arms division at Human Rights Watch, which is weapons, because we met banning landmines, and then he went on to lead banning cluster munitions. So, we, you know, I started just saying we have to do something about this, and we started talking with other campaigners that we know from other weapons work, and a year ago in London launched the, the campaign to stop killer robots, and in eight months' time, we have raised the issue to such a degree that governments are going to begin discussions about them in Geneva in May. Excellent. And it just shows that a small group of people really can raise an issue to such a degree that governments have to respond. That is inspiring and good good to hear. Um, We're going to have to take another break right now, Jody. Uh Uh-huh. When we come back, I want to learn a little bit more about this and then um, and then you know, continue our conversation about, uh, you know, the, the world that you see, which I think is uh-huh. of such interest to our listeners. Uh-huh. This is Kate Ebner. I'm talking to Jody Williams, and we're going to be right back. Do you want to take your organization to the next level? The Nebo Company develops leaders, teams, and organizations to achieve their highest potential. We provide executive and team coaching, leadership courses, mentor programs, and retreats tailored to the unique goals of your organization's leaders. With national reach, Nebo specializes in helping senior leaders to articulate a compelling vision, then develop the strategy, goals, and accountabilities that make the vision real. For more information, visit NeboCompany.com. Be sure to ask about our leadership and life curriculum. Again, that's NeboCompany.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Hello and welcome back once again to our final segment today, 
I've been speaking with Jody Williams, Nobel Peace Prize winner and human rights activist. We've been digging into this question of how to create peace, um, and in particular, talking about some of the campaigns, two of the campaigns that Jody's involved with right now. Um, Jody, you know, right before the break, we were talking about the campaign to stop killer robots and mm-hmm. the, you know, the movement that you're really getting um, on, on a very short amount of time. And you made a great comment that, you know, this is evidence of what a small group of people can really do. And, you know, I, I wanted to just ask you, um, you know, I feel gratitude to you for the work that you're doing um, on behalf of us all. And I, I also am curious about um, what keeps you going. You know, how do you, how do you stay in it as you do? Um, Well, I've had times like most grassroots activists of wanting to run screaming into the sunset. (laughs) And I like to dramatically frame it, you know, where it's just like, Oh my God. Can't I have the IQ of a large head of lettuce, which is zero? Mm-hmm. Not not think about anything and just sort of hum my way through life. And for better or worse, I am, you know, that's not my nature. I have tried on occasion to actually contemplate the possibility of getting what I call a straight job. It just it hasn't worked for me. I think part of the issue is once you have worked for, you know, a a sustainable piece that most people don't understand the roots of for so many decades, it's impossible to stop. What would, how would I be able to look myself in the mirror if I turned my back on all of the people in the world that I've worked with, that I will work with, who are struggling to survive when I, you know, I am fortunate to be from the U.S., I live a, you know, relatively privileged life compared to some of my colleagues in the DRC or the Central African Republic or on and on. There's just no way that I could walk away. And also that damn Nobel Peace Prize, you can't give it back. <laughs> and they want you to be a role model. You know, they, one time they gave it posthumously and they realized that that was really stupid because they want individuals out there who do feel the responsibility and do continue to work for the greater good. Yes. Such as Tutu, um, His Holiness, Mairead mm-hmm. McGuire, Yashirin Abadi, you know, I, on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people who... Everyone I know who I'm friends with in the, of the Peace Laureate group feels more responsibility each year, not less. You know, my family sometimes says to me, are you thinking about retiring at some point? And it's, how do you retire from helping, you know, change, trying to help change the way we view life and our role on this planet? It's just not something you can quit, as much as you know, I might like to occasionally. Well, you're right. I think <laughs> I think it, it's hard even to imagine how to unhook from that. Yeah. And, 
And, you know, I, as I'm wondering, as, as you're describing this, you know, how do you convince political leaders that the world will be a more secure place without dangerous weapons and enormous mili- militaries? How do you change people's minds? Well, we've that? done it little by little. I wish that, you know, one could say we just go out there and talk about human security and sh- with our brilliance and make them understand. It's, as you know, much more complicated than that because of the military-industrial complex, which is a word, one of those terms one hates to use, but it's it's the reality. You know, and it wasn't a tree-hugging peacenik who made up the term. It was Dwight David Eisenhower after World War II when he was telling the United States to beware, you know, the love affair between the so-called defense industry and the Pentagon and Congress. Mm-hmm because that would forever change our future. So when you try to have a logical conversation about you know, how secure does all of this make us, people immediately wave the flag. And behind that waving of the flag are the defense industries that are making billions of dollars of our tax money to create weapons like killer robots that whoever asked for those things if you had a politician running for office who said, I support killer robots, would you vote for that person? All they ever say is, I'm for a strong defense of America, right? They don't say, I'm for using one half of the U.S. taxpayers' money for the so-called defense industry of this country, and all of the rest of the needs of the people of the United States of America come out of the other half. To change how we think really requires starting with little kids in kindergarten. And I know some excellent organizations that are doing that, that are teaching, you know, how do you build peace? What does that even mean? You know, how do you resolve conflict with the other kid in your class when you want the same toy instead of punching him in the eye and taking the toy? Yes, yes. I'm thinking of the school I sent my children to, which taught those skills, um, mm-hmm. which they called self-transcendence. Oh, I like that. <laughs> it was you wonderful. You tried to call, talk to people about self-transcendence here in the U.S.? They would call you a tree-hugging liberal, and they'd <laughs> <laughs> walk away, most, most of them. Well, I tell you, it's very, very effective, and I, I, I oh, love yeah. that, that you, you go to to the children. You know, I want to imagine, this is our, probably our last question we have time for, but mm-hmm. let's imagine we had a group of young grassroots activists with us here today um, listening. What advice can you give them? I give it to everybody, whether they're an activist or not. You know, anybody can participate in changing the world. And what, one of the things that I'm exp- described as is an example of an individual who changed the world. That makes my hair stand on end. Mm -hmm. I did not do that. We changed the world on landmines. I try to ask young people to think about the one issue that really gets them the most, whether it's LGBT, whether it's climate change, whether it's, you know, stopping war. I, I don't care what the issue is as long as it's Something that would make the world a better place for everybody if you work on it. So pick out one because you can't possibly do them all. And then find a group working on it and volunteer. I started as a volunteer. 
give it a shot. See what it feels like. You know, it's not going to happen because you want it to. Worrying about the various issues facing us in today's world is not a strategy for change. Sitting in a bar drinking a beer or a nice glass of wine with your friends and whining about the world is not a strategy for change. It's a way to make yourself feel self-righteously better because you think about these things and others don't even think about them. My, my opinion is save your energy. If you're not going to use that energy for action, don't even bother. It's, it's truly wasted. And when I say that to young people, they, you know, they kind of get a little agitated, but it's the mm-hmm. truth. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I love, I love this advice. I think it's important. You know, what is that one thing that really moves you, that you really care about? Find out and get involved. And I want to send people to the Nobel Women's Initiative website to learn more uh-huh. and also Thanks. encourage them to go to the campaigns. And my final note is that I have been reading and have so enjoyed reading. I feel like I know you better than I really do, Jody, because I've been reading your book. My name is Jody Williams, A Vermont Girl's Winding Path to the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a really a great read and um, it gives me the feeling that I can, I can do this. So That's I want to I say thank it. you. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. I want people to understand you can be a normal person with ups and downs and you can still be a participant in change. That's a wrap for us today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.